Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric. I want to welcome you to E3, and uh, we're going to talk today about um, some of the most challenging words that Jesus has ever spoken. And in light of that, I want to start off this morning by telling you guys about a particular person in my life that has had a profound impact on me in so many ways. Um, I graduated from TCU with a degree in sociology, and like any good person with a degree in sociology, I have... I had no idea what to do with my life except go to grad school. So I uh, went into grad school at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, and one of my first classes that I took at UT Austin was with a guy named uh, Dr. Joseph Lopriado. And if you, if you guys know me, you may have heard me tell this story. But Dr. Lopriado was a singular, unique individual. Um, he emigrated from Italy at the age of 18 and enlisted in the army and fought in Korea and then became, uh, through that process, became a U.S. citizen. And he was born in 1927, so he, he was kind of from another era, you know. And the thing about Dr. Lopriado that you had to understand is that he was terrifying. Um, he was one of the most intimidating professors I have ever in my life had. He had the Italian accent. He was a vet, and he would tell us repeatedly how he wished he could teach us, which was uh, he wished that we would dress wearing ties uh, and, and, and coats to, to class. He told us that he wished he could make us stand up when we gave an answer, and um, what was more is there were things that he did that he didn't ask permission for. So in other words, if Dr. Lopriado asked you a question in class and you started to answer and your answer was not well thought out and you were kind of, well, um, 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 he would, he would wave you off. He was like, I don't want to hear your answer. If you can't string together a thought, I don't want to hear your answer. And, and this all happened, you have to understand, this is a graduate seminar class. This is a class of nine people around a table. There is no room to hide from Dr. Lopriado. Uh, it, it culminated um, in the final project of our semester. It was an oral presentation, and uh, I won't go all the way into the detail because we have a lot of information to go through, but let me, uh, let's, let me just say that most everybody gave their presentation and got through it all right, and he gave us you know, our, our grade. But there was one student in particular who got about 10 minutes into his presentation. Again, imagine this. We're sitting around one table, nine of us, and he's there. And he gets about 10 minutes into his presentation, and Dr. Lopriato, in his Italian accent, kind of put his hand up and just said, I'm going to stop your presentation because it's obvious you have no idea what you're talking about. And then he said, I tell you what, why don't I just finish your presentation for you? And we're all just like, oh my gosh, it wasn't me, but we're just, oh my gosh, what is happening? He was terrifying, and I have never, ever forgotten him, because he's one of the hardest professors I ever had, you know? When we all were, those first year grad students and all the third year and fourth year students were like, oh man, watch out for Lopriato, he's going to have you for lunch, you know? And we spent the entire semester being terrified of him. But he called things out of us, in particular, how to formulate thoughts when we answer, how to 
put together uh, comments and dialogue about really tough questions. He pulled things out of me as a 20, 21-year-old that I never thought possible. And I remember him to this day, 20-plus years later. Now, I'm getting a, a master's in theology right now. I can't tell you who some of my professors were a year ago because they weren't that challenging. But Dr. Lopriato, who challenged me, I'll never forget that man. He actually just passed away this, this spring. I just found this out. He was 86 years old. And I think there's something about me in, in any way that loves to be challenged. You know, the, the people and the professors that look at me and go, hey, where you're at, that's not good enough. I'm gonna take you someplace higher. I'm gonna stretch you. I'm gonna challenge you. At first, I, I'm defiant. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. But when it's all said and done, I'm speaking for myself. When it's all said and done, the people that challenge me and the situations that challenge me are the things that, that resonate with me and stay with me for a lifetime. And if I have to be honest with myself, uh, I crave challenge. The easy things, take them or leave them. But the situations that call things out of me that I didn't think were possible, those are the things I want. Those are the things that shape me as a human being. And I'd like to think that maybe you guys are the same way. That deep inside, even though growth is uncomfortable and challenge is uncomfortable, that if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, you know what? It may be uncomfortable, but it sure is necessary. I don't want to stay the same way that I was last year or last month and be that way for the rest of my life. And, I, and I'm talking about this because the words that we're going to look at today are some of the most challenging words I think that Jesus has ever, ever offered to anybody. And when I started to understand and wrap my mind around that Jesus isn't just wasn't just put on this earth to be my friend, to be my buddy, to be my savior, but that he came to this earth to challenge me to a new way of living. When he said, Eric, where you're at as a man is not good enough. You can be so much more. When I started to really sit with that, and understand that Jesus was challenging me, and these words were challenging me to a new way of existence, I sat up a little bit, and I decided that maybe I should pay attention to what he's saying here. And I'm hoping that if you're in this room this morning, that maybe there's a piece of you that's the same way. Now, Jesus has already offered us challenging words, We've been going through them for the past few weeks. Live your life free of anger. Is that challenging for anyone? How about living your life free of lust and desire that uses other human beings like a, like a tool to satisfy your own cravings? Is that challenging for anyone? How about living your life free of exaggeration uh, and your, where your speech and your words are simply what they are? Honest, plain speech. Is that challenging for anyone? This is a whole new way of living 
that Jesus offers us. And what I want to do, before we get into this text, I want to offer just a couple ideas and reminders of what's going on and where we're at in the story. Everything that Jesus says, I believe, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 stem from a simple statement in Matthew 4, and I just want to remind you of it. Jesus comes back from his temptation, and the first thing that he utters to people around him are, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Change your mind. The word in most Bibles is repent, but repent is metanoia in Greek. Change your mind. Think different about the world because the kingdom is here. And then uh, when we went through the series inverted, we went through the Beatitudes, which are the first thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the points that, that, that we tried to make through inverted is that the Beatitudes are not a new law. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's not about, well, go be poor in spirit so you can be blessed. The words from the Beatitude are, the takeaway from the Beatitude is, wherever you are at as a human being, you're blessed. So if you're mourning, if you're sad, if you're a loser, if you're a peacemaker, if you're hungry for righteousness, guess what? You're blessed. You're blessed where you're at. So the kingdom and blessing, that's where all of this starts. And when Jesus starts in to talk about anger and lust and divorce and honest speaking, it's all in light of the fact that, hey, there's a kingdom here and this is the way you're supposed to live in it. But also don't do these things thinking that you're not blessed already because you're already blessed. This is the way you live in light of the kingdom. So we're gonna pick up his words in verse 38 of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus starts this way. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say... Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So a couple things going on here. Uh, the first thing he starts out, he says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many people have ever heard that phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Uh, I just want to, I thought it would be helpful a little bit to shed a little light on, uh, on that phrase. Because looking at it from our perspective, it can almost seem a little bit uh, harsh, you know. You punch me, I punch you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, but it's interesting how this develops in the history of law and in Jesus' history as a Jew. Um, long, long time ago, before the Old Testament is written, you have to understand that, that retribution and revenge started out in the private sphere. So what that means is that if, if one guy um, steals another guy's cattle, then that guy, the, the victim, takes it upon himself to take the law literally into his own hands. So he makes up his own retribution. 
he stole a, cow, a piece of cow or a cow from me. I'm going to go steal one cow, but maybe I'll steal two cows from him. If, if a person was hurt, it was all up to the victim to decide what the retribution would be. How will I avenge this? So you kill somebody, you kill a member of my family, well, then I'm gonna go kill a member of your family. But you know what? Maybe I had a bad day. Maybe I woke up extra grumpy. So why don't I just kill your whole family? Or why don't I kill your whole village? Uh, at some point in the development of civilization, of, uh, retribution and revenge is taken out of the private sphere into the public sphere. So in other words, they say, you know what? We shouldn't leave this up to individuals to decide. And this is where you get the law that says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When that phrase came out, it was revolutionary. Because for once it said, it's not uh, six eyes for one eye. It's not a broken jaw for a tooth. It's a limiting factor. So they come out and they say, you know what? We shouldn't leave it up to the victim to decide what retribution looks like. Retribution is going to look, look like this. If you lose something, well, maybe this person should lose it, but the community is going to be involved in this discussion. And what's interesting is then uh, you see this phrase in the Old Testament. What the Old Testament does that is not done in the ancient world is the Old Testament says not only is it going to be an eye for an eye, but we're going to make sure that, that uh, retribution is egalitarian. So in other words, up to that point, if a person, a victim was wealthy, well, then his eye counted a little bit more than a shepherd's eye. And what the Old Testament comes along and says, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a victim, you get justice. That's the revolutionary statement of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus comes along and says, that's not good enough. That's not the way the kingdom is going to work. Now, uh, to show you this, I, I, need a, a, I was going to ask for a volunteer, but I, I can't really have a human volunteer, and you'll see why in just a second. So I'm going to ask Joe and Mike to bring out our volunteer for this morning, because I think it goes to what Jesus is saying here. Um, you kind of have to wrap your head around what's actually going on. So Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. Don't resist an evil person. And the first thing I want you to know is that this is not abstract thinking to the people who are hearing Jesus talk. They knew who the evil person was because remember, they are an occupied nation. They have Roman soldiers wandering their streets. When Jesus says, don't resist an evil person and don't resist those who persecute you, they know exactly who he's talking about. They know exactly who their enemy is. He's gonna get sat down here in just a minute, I promise. So there we go. So this is Charlie. Everybody say hello to Charlie. We don't know why he's called Charlie, but he is. We're going to turn him around here. All right. So the first thing Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, what does he say? Turn the other cheek, right? And when I grew up, I heard this going to vacation Bible school, you know, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. 
But when you think about what Jesus is actually saying, there's something uh, that comes out that, that allows us to understand he's pushing on people and pushing on us and challenging us. Um, most people, not me, but most people in the world are right-handed. Amen? Yeah. Don't think of yourselves as better than us. Okay? We have to navigate you right-handed world all the time. So, I believe Jesus is speaking, you know, in generalities. If a person slaps you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek. So think about this for just a second. I need Charlie to turn around here a little bit. If you're right-handed and I go to hit somebody, what cheek do I hit? The left. If I hit somebody, naturally, if I slap them, I hit their left cheek. But Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, how do you hit somebody if you're right-handed on the right cheek? You backhand them. Now, what's interesting, in ancient Jewish law, in the ancient world, is it's probably no different from our world. A backhanded slap is a lot worse and humiliating than a fist or a front-handed slap. In fact, in the ancient Jewish world, they recognized at one point you could compensate somebody for injury. So in other words, if someone slapped you, sometimes they could pay you off to keep from getting slapped back. But if you backhand slapped somebody, you know what your payment was? It was three to four times the amount of a front-handed slap. So what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that when someone slaps you, he is putting in their mind the most humiliating way to get struck in the ancient world, a backhand across the face. Nobody wants to get hit, but you don't want to be humiliated and hit at the same time. And Jesus says, you know what you do? If somebody humiliates you, if they slap you with the back of their hand, if they insult you, what does he say to do? Give them the other cheek and let them do it again. It's not just about physical injury. Jesus is saying, what if the injury is beyond physical? What if it's an insult? And he says, you know what? Give them the other cheek. And then he says this, uh, if they take you to court, and they want to uh, take your shirt, give them your coat too. And I always used to think of it as, as this, you know, like in my terms, you know. So if I had an Adidas track jacket, which, you know, you guys have probably seen me wear here and there. And I go to court for some reason. And I go, okay, well, take my, take my cool track jacket. And then, I, oh, well, give your shirt too. So I take my shirt off. I got another shirt underneath. So that wouldn't be a little, it'd be a little bit awkward for you guys, but I'm not going to do it. Except this is not the way people dressed in the ancient world. In the ancient world, to Jesus' audience, they had two articles of clothing. So when Jesus says, if somebody takes you to court and they want your coat, you know, which is kind of your robe, he says, give it to them. But then if they want your, 
your shirt too. When you did that, trust me, you don't want to know. Jesus is saying if somebody wants something from you, give them everything. They would be naked in front of somebody. Jesus is like, just do it, if that's what people want. In fact, uh, what's even more interesting is that there was Jewish law that you were not allowed to take this from a person because for a person who didn't have a lot of money, this was their blanket at night. This is the way they kept warm. And Jesus is basically saying, if they want it, give it to them. He's telling his, he's calling his followers to a radical level of perception. And then he says, hey, if somebody, if a soldier comes up to you and says, hey, carry my pack, which is what Roman soldiers did. They lived in an occupied country. A Roman soldier could point at anybody and go, hey, you. Come carry my pack. So now a Jew is carrying the pack of an, of an enemy soldier. And Jesus says, don't just carry it one mile. Go ahead and carry it two. This is way beyond convenience. This is way beyond my comfortable Sunday spirituality. He ends this way, uh, Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Don't think about your 401k. Don't think about the, the money that you wanted to use to, to buy a latte with. Jesus says, if somebody asks, you give. You don't loan, you give. Anybody challenged yet? If you are, say Amen. I'm going to have Charlie taken away here because I really don't want to have this looking at me the rest of the day because he's kind of creepy. This mannequin has scared me more times at E3 than any other person or object. Walk around the corner and like, whoa. Jesus is calling us to a whole new level of existence. That is no way comfortable. Then he goes on. Verse... 43, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, comes out of the Old Testament. But I say, love your enemies. And again, remember, these are not abstract enemies. When he says enemies, the Jews know exactly who he's talking about. Those Roman soldiers walking around, those guys that conquered us, those guys that beat us, those guys that take our taxes. Enemies were real. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So it's really easy. Again, 
for Jesus's audience to know who he's talking about. When he says neighbors and enemies, they know neighbor equals a fellow Jew. Neighbor equals, in our world, neighbor equals another Christian who looks like me, who thinks like me, who believes what I believe. For Jesus's audience, enemy was anybody outside the people of God. I think the same thing probably goes for us. Enemy are people who don't look like us, don't believe like us. And Jesus says, that's not the way you're supposed to live. Everybody can do that, Jesus is saying. Jesus says, those people who don't look like you, who don't act like you, who don't believe the way you do, those are the people you're supposed to love. And he looks at it and he says, hey, God makes the sun shine on the evil and the just. He makes the rain fall. To, their, to this society, it's an agrarian society. I'm not a farmer, but sunlight and rain seem pretty important for farmers. And Jesus is saying, look, God does good things for bad people sometimes. And sometimes bad things happen to good people. Don't think that just because something as bad is happening to this people group over there, that they are somehow outside of God's grace. And don't think that just because the good things are happening in your world that God is completely satisfied with you because that's not the way God works. Sunshine and rain fall on the good and the bad alike. God makes no differentiation. God just says, I want to love everybody. I extend my grace to everybody. So if we sit around in our I'm just gonna say it. If we sit around in our Christian bubble and we love everybody that shows up at authentic manhood or women, if you love everyone that shows up at, at She Three and you think you're doing pretty good, Jesus is saying there's a whole new level of living out there. And he says, be perfect. Be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. Now, I used to think of that as a real intimidating term, perfection. I used to think of it as like a moral judgment. Be perfect. Be morally pure. God, God is morally pure. But the word that Jesus uses there is teleos. And teleos means complete, full, lacking nothing. So what Jesus is simply saying here is like, God loves completely. He makes no distinction on the bad people and the good people. He loves everyone. He extends his grace, his radical grace to every single person. So that's what you have to do. You want to love completely? Figure out how to love your enemy. Anybody challenged yet? Anybody need to hear some of the Beatitudes again just to remind we're blessed, you know? So I have a few thoughts and then a few questions that I just want to leave us with. First thought, Jesus is a realist. I love this about him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you, if you, if, if you discover you have an enemy, throw up your hands, cry, shout, bury your head in the sand. Jesus says enemies are real. They were real to his first hearers. They are real to us. There are people out there who wish us no good. Individually, as a nation, 
as Christians, enemies are real. And Jesus was not going to have you pretend otherwise. Thought number two, Jesus thinks we can change. Jesus believes that you are capable of living beyond where you're at right now. Isn't that cool? Your broken, mistake-prone, goofy, boneheaded self. Jesus looks at you and says, you're capable of better than that. Because what I've believed is, what I've come to believe is that the people who challenge us are the people who believe in us. You understand what I'm saying? If someone doesn't challenge you, they don't believe in you. Jesus believes that we are capable of more. And I, for one, want to rise to that challenge. Third one, third thought. Jesus is saying that nonviolent resistance to evil is the way to live in the world. This does not mean nonviolent non-resistance. Jesus says, non-violent resistance is the way to live in the world. So if someone wants to strike you, you allow yourself to be struck. And this is not comfortable for anybody. I think we would prefer nonviolent non-resistance. Nonviolent non-resistance means we run the other way. And let evil have its course. But Jesus says, no, we need to stand up to evil, but not in the way evil wants us to. Because you know what evil really wants us to do? Evil wants us to respond that when evil strikes us, we strike back. Or maybe we go get a two by four, because evil understands that. What evil does not understand and what Dr. King understood and what Gandhi understood and everybody who has ever practiced nonviolent resistance understands that when evil meets somebody who stands up and says, beat me if you want to, if you have to, then pretty soon evil runs out of things to say and do. Next thought. Jesus' approach to enemies is to turn them into neighbors. So Jesus says there's enemies out there, but you can't leave them to be enemies. Love your enemies. And not just in the sense of like, okay, maybe I'll give them like a, a comfortable side hug, like, you know, like, how you doing, buddy? Jesus says, turn them into neighbors. Love them. Pray for them. Next thought. This is where it gets really cool. These comments are grounded in the character of God and they find their fullest expression in the cross of Christ. Because first of all, Jesus says, think of your father in heaven. Rain and sunshine fall on everybody. So you should treat everybody without distinction. Make some sunshine show up on your enemies. Make some rain to fall on their enemies. Do good to your enemies. Turn them into neighbors. 
And I think if I'm honest, if I think about myself, you know, there are things that I do that probably frustrate God. Anybody else? And God says, Eric, I don't want you to be my enemy. God says, Eric, I want you to be my neighbor. So I'm not going to bring the punishment that you deserve, Eric, for all that stuff. What I want to do, Eric, is turn you into my neighbor. So I'm going to shower you with love, Eric. And this finds its fullest expression in the cross of Christ. Colossians uh, 2, Paul writes that when Jesus is on the cross, that the powers and the authorities are shamed and defeated. What this means is that there is some cosmic battle that's going on with evil at the cross. And that Jesus knew the only way that evil is ultimately going to be defeated because I believe the cross has defeated evil now. These are just the dying gasps of evil. But Jesus says the only way to, do, to defeat evil is to let evil do its worst to you. So kill me. So kill me. So when we practice nonviolent resistance, we do it with the eye of this Savior Jesus took everything upon him, beatings, tortures, nails. And then when he did that, something broke in evil forever. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said that evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it has no match. That hit anybody today? All the people that we want to strike back against, before you strike back, think about the cross of Jesus. Because the cross of Jesus tells us that there's another way to live. And I think, before I go on, I think that uh, a lot of times we take these words and we go, but Jesus didn't live with ISIS. You know, but he did. He actually did. People have been beheading each other for millennia. The only thing that's different is now is Twitter and Facebook. Jesus knew terror. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't know what it meant to, to live as a world superpower. Ah, that's fine. Maybe he didn't. But what I want to just stand up here and do today is give a fresh hearing for the words of Jesus. I feel like we take these words and we move the goalpost. Well, Jesus didn't understand this. He didn't understand this. He didn't understand crime. He didn't understand this. Maybe he didn't. I just want us to hear the words again. And the words are pretty obvious. If your enemy wants to strike you and humiliate you, let him do it because I've been crucified. The way to defeat evil is not with more evil. It's not with more violence. By like getting on your knees and going like, well, do your worst. Do your worst. So I want to leave us with just three questions. 
First question, who is your enemy? Don't lie to yourself and say you don't have them. We all have them. Who's your enemy? I was thinking about this this morning. Maybe if you need a little help. Contrasting enemies and neighbors. Neighbors tend to have faces and names. Even when they do crazy stuff that we don't like, neighbors have faces and names. Well, you know, I know Bob did that thing to me, but that's just Bob being Bob. You know who enemies are? Enemies are faceless. Enemies are those people. Enemies are this way. Well, Bob did that thing to me, but that's just Bob. He probably had a bad day. Those people, they always behave this way. Categorical statements. You want to know who your enemies are? Who do you make categorical statements about? The liberals, the conservatives, the progressives, Catholics, Muslims, Jews. How long has the list got to be? I could go on and on and on. We all have them. Name them. And then the second question follows from that. How can you show complete love to an enemy? How can you make some sunshine fall on one of those people, some rain to fall on some of those people? And the thought that I had this morning is that sometimes, and this is kind of maybe a little bit of a shift, sometimes we need to acknowledge that our enemy is ourself and that we're beating ourselves up. You're always that way. I'm always responding this way. I'm always failing. I'm always doing this thing. How can you show love to yourself? And the last question is what, what is violence and what is hating your enemies costing you? Because I think the truth of the matter is, is the longer we hold on to hate and violence, the more we discover that the, the victim, the true victim, is ourselves. We become a little bit more governed by anger. We become a little bit more governed by rage. And we realize if we would have just had the courage to release that, we would find that we were the people imprisoned and, and, and we have been victimized to a whole new level. So those are the three questions. The band is gonna come up and play one last song and it's a song uh, about Dr. King. And I know Dr. King got frustrated with nonviolent resistance to the, at the end of his career. But the legacy of the civil rights movement says that when evil is allowed, when, when people accept nonviolent resistance, it exposes evil for what it truly is, morally vacuous. So contemplate those three questions while Lori sings this song. 